Well, morning, everybody. It's lovely to see you. I want to say a special thank you to those who worked so hard to make Friday night a success. Events like that don't just happen. I think the sign of a good event is that you turn up and think that, well, nobody's really been working terribly hard. And it was easy to do that on Friday, but I know a lot of you did work hard, and I'm very grateful for that. And uh, I hope that you enjoyed the experience. The other thing I think I need to say is um, this is not an easy passage. So do please have the white bulletin open in front of you with the outline that shows where we're going in the next few minutes. And just try and stay, stay tuned, try and stay with the main thrust. I think Bianca gave us an excellent reading, uh, and I hope the outline and what I'm about to say by the Holy Spirit will help you get the main point. But uh, we do need God's help, and I'm going to ask for that now, so won't you bow with me? Heavenly Father, it is uh, indeed our joy to worship you together and to bring you the adoration of our hearts and the consecration of our lives. We thank you that you are our Father, that you know each one of us through and through, and that your word is able first to find us, then to speak to us, and then to transform us. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, this passage will come alive to our hearts and minds this morning. And so we say with one voice, speak Lord, for your servants are listening. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now our question this morning uh, is a rather odd one. It is, does Israel have a future? Uh, that might strike you as rather an odd question to be considering in church on Sunday morning. But in the last couple of weeks, we've been working our way through Romans chapters 9 through 11, which is probably the most detailed treatment of the place of Israel in God's plan for the human race. And Romans 11 is almost certainly the most detailed statement about Israel's future. So does Israel have a future? Maybe you've never really thought about that before, but it's actually a far more important question than you might think. For a start, when God came to earth in the person of the Lord Jesus, he came as a Jew, uh, not an Englishman, uh, not a South African, a Jew. And that fact alone should cause us, I think, to stop and think most seriously about why God did that and what it means for us this morning and what it means for Israel. And every Christian, without exception, should be concerned about this, not least because of the shameful role that Christians have played in promoting anti-Semitism. Uh, anti-Semitism, of course, is the word that we use for hostility or prejudice against Jewish people. And we Christians have to confess with shame that some of the roots of anti-Semitism are found in the history of Christianity. From earliest days, uh, Christians accused the Jews of being Christ-killers. Uh, even Martin Luther, the, the great reformer, 
said some horrific things about Jewish people in Germany. And some of the roots of anti-Semitism that exploded in the Nazi Holocaust came from the misguided thinking of professing Christians. So, what should our attitude be to the people of Israel? Does Israel have a future? If so, what is it? It's an area, actually, where Christians have very different views. So, on the one hand, uh, there are Christians who say that it's totally inappropriate to share your faith with someone who's Jewish. In fact, there's no need to, because they say there are two ways to God. There is the Jewish way. Uh, So all those who are Jews because of the Old Covenant are members of the family of God. And then there is the way to God for everybody else, uh, the Gentiles, that's us, which is by faith in Christ. And then there are others who say that the church has simply replaced Israel in the plans and purposes of God so that Israel no longer has any spiritual significance. The church is the new Israel, it's replaced the old. And then there are others uh, who say that the Jews still are the very special people of God. They need to become Christians, of course, but God is at work in the nation of Israel And he's still looking to fulfil all of his marvellous Old Testament promises to them. So, uh, the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948 is seen by them to be massively significant spiritually. They say that this was the beginning of the fulfilment of God's promises to Israel in the Old Testament. And uh, Christians who believe that are expecting a physical temple to appear in Jerusalem and material prosperity and peace for the people of Israel starting very soon. Now what on earth are we to make of all that? What should our attitude be? Where should we stand? Well, there is no better place to look than Romans 9-11. to And regulars ought to know by now that in this section of the letter... Paul is grappling with the great problem that as he went around proclaiming the good news of the Lord Jesus, the majority of his fellow Jews rejected it. Some believed it. In fact, all of the first Christians were Jewish. But many, many, many Jews rejected the gospel of Christ. And that, of course, raises important questions. Has God abandoned his promises to his people? And that's one of the issues Paul is grappling with in Romans 9 to 11. Now, if you want to trace the development of Paul's teaching in this section on the Jewish people, we could summarise chapter 9 as Israel's fall. In chapter 9, Paul says that the majority of Israel has turned away from Christ. That is Israel's fall. Paul says all of that's under God's control because God is sovereign. And he chooses who's going to belong to his people and who isn't. But that raises important questions, doesn't it? Uh, Is this all down to God's arbitrary choice? 
Well, last week, in answer to that question, we looked at Romans 10. And Paul's teaching about the Jews in chapter 10 could be summarised under the heading, Israel's Fault. And Paul says that the way to become part of the people of God is through the response of faith to a message. And God has graciously spread that message across the world and if we reject it, as Israel did, we only have ourselves to blame. And now we've come to chapter 11 and we're going to be looking at chapter 11 in two parts, this week and next. And the great message of chapter 11 concerns Israel's future. There is a glorious future for the nation of Israel. God has not abandoned them. He's got a special place for the nation of Israel in his future plans. And if we understand what he's saying, and I have to admit that in places that's a bit of an uphill climb, But if we do understand what Paul's saying, not only are we going to be able to find our own path through all the different positions that Christians have taken on these things, but I have to say, and this has been my experience, we will also get a much bigger picture of the awesome goodness and grace of Almighty God. And surely that's reason enough, isn't it, for us to be digging into Romans 11 this morning. So two main headings for this morning's teaching and three applications at the end. The main headings are as follows. Number one, the rejection of Israel is not total. And number two, the rejection of Israel is not final. So number one, the rejection of Israel is not total. And here we're in chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. Now last week, um, in chapter 10, Paul summarised two different understandings about how somebody could get right with God. So one camp was saying, well the way to get right with God is by doing good things, by obeying God's law, by our works. In other words, we get right with God, they were saying, by our own efforts. And Paul says that the majority of Jewish people understood things that way. Paul says they should have known better because their own scriptures, the Old Testament, makes it perfectly clear that God has never expected his people to perform impossible tasks in order to get right with him. No, his Messiah, the Lord Jesus, does those things for us. And that is the other understanding about how anybody can get right with God in Romans 10. Christ comes down from heaven, he lives a perfect life, he dies a sacrificial death, and then he ascends to heaven having completed perfectly the work of salvation on our behalf. And all we need to do in order to get right with God is trust the message concerning the completed work of the Lord Jesus. 
But at the end of chapter 10, just please have a look at that last verse, Paul says that most of his fellow Jews rejected the gospel. So at the end of chapter 10, God says, All day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So, you've got the picture. Christ has done everything. God has been holding out his hands with the offer of salvation by faith, but the Jews have said, no thanks. So, Paul responds in chapter 11 with the question we ought to be asking this morning. Chapter 11, verse 1. Did God reject his people? Does Israel have a future? Has God washed his hands of the Jews? Has he finished with them and started again with the Gentiles? And Paul responds, chapter 11, verse 1, by no means. The rejection of Israel is not total. And to make the point, he begins by pointing to himself. Notice this. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, God's chosen me. So God can't have abandoned his people because I'm a Jew. And when you remember that Paul himself had been a violent opponent of Christianity, you realise, don't you, that if God could call Paul, well, he can call anybody. Maybe you're thinking, God would never choose me. Uh, He would never choose my parents. He would never choose my best friend. And the Apostle Paul says, you're quite wrong. Remember me. I was a violent opponent of the Christian faith. And the fact that Paul is a Christian is a sign that God has not rejected the totality of Israel. Far from it. And uh, he points to some evidence from Israel's history in verses 2 and 3, the story of Elijah and the time when Elijah appealed to God against the nation of Israel. Just have a look at verse 3. What did Elijah say? Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. Now, it was a terrible time in Israel's history. The vast majority of the nation had turned away from the living God and were bowing down to the fertility god, Baal. And now Jezebel, the wicked queen, was trying to kill Elijah himself. And so he's crying out, you see, God have mercy. Now, don't misunderstand, he's not frightened for his own security. What he's saying is, look, if I die, that's the end of the covenant. Because as far as I can see, I'm the only believer in all of Israel. And if Jezebel kills me, well, that's the end of the gospel. But God reassures him in verse 4, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So God, you see had preserved a remnant for himself, even in those very low and discouraging times. And Paul says, what God did then, 
he's also doing now. Verse 5, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now you may not be very familiar with these things and if you're new to the Christian faith and you're trying to understand it, well this is the key. It's that word grace. Because if you've understood grace, you've actually understood Christianity. Because grace means an undeserved gift. Now you see, many people today think that the way to get right with God is by earning it. By, as it were, climbing up a ladder to heaven by doing lots of good things, helping old ladies across the road, being a generally nice person. But the Bible says you can never do enough. It's all by grace. Getting right with God is an undeserved gift, only made possible by the death of the Lord Jesus. And God has chosen some from the people of Israel to belong to him by grace. He's not rejected all the people of Israel. There is a remnant, says Paul, that still exists. And then in verse 7, he gives us an executive summary of his entire argument from the beginning of verse 9 to where we are in chapter 11. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly by good works, it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened. So in other words, what the majority of the people of Israel tried desperately to earn themselves, they never achieved, because you can never achieve it. But the elect, the people chosen by Almighty God, the Gentiles, the remnant of the Jews, they did receive this right standing with Almighty God. The others, well, they were hardened. And that sounds really harsh to us, doesn't it? Um, But you see, don't forget human responsibility. Chapter 10 made that clear for us last week, didn't it? They had rejected the message and therefore God hardened their hearts. And in chapter 11, verse 9, Paul says that that has come as punishment. Actually, the word in our Bibles is retribution. Can you see it? And their punishment, what is their punishment? It is spiritual blindness. Verse 8. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see. And verse 10. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see. So you see, their blindness was a punishment from Almighty God. And I want to say that this is a tremendous warning, a serious warning to us this morning. Because the more that you hear the message of the Christian gospel and do not accept it, the harder it's going to become for you to turn and believe. Because you see, your heart just becomes harder and harder and harder. 
It's actually the same with any entrenched pattern of sin in our lives. So there we are, there's something we're doing wrong, we know we shouldn't be doing it, and uh, our conscience is pricking us. And it's saying, you know, Simon, I really shouldn't be doing that. But the more we do it anyway and ignore the voice of conscience, the harder it is to stop. And eventually we find ourselves in a rut, and over time, progressively, in the end, it becomes impossible to repent. So don't forget human responsibility. Uh, Yes, God had hardened their hearts, but only when human beings had hardened their own hearts against the message first. By the same token, please don't forget God's sovereignty. You see, God isn't standing on the touchline of the world wondering what on earth is going to happen and who's going to believe and who's not. He's in charge, he chooses, and he hardens. So don't forget God's sovereignty. But above all, in Romans 9 to 11, do not forget God's mercy. That actually is the dominant theme of Romans 9 to 11. Our God is rich in mercy. And uh, even in judgment, he's fulfilling his merciful Purposes, And that brings us to the second important thing that Paul wants us to know this morning. Number one, the rejection of Israel is not total. Number two, the rejection of Israel is not final. Verses 11 to 16. So, verse 11. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Yes, the bulk of Israel are blind. Is that the end of the story of Israel in God's plan for the human race? Will they never be lifted up again? And Paul says, not at all. And the next few verses you could describe as a circle of blessing. It's actually a chain uh, or a circle that is repeated four times in Romans 11. See if you can spot it with me as I read verses 11 and 12. Again I ask, said Paul, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? No, not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? Now I want you to notice the the stages in this circle of blessing. It begins, as we've already seen, with the rejection of the gospel by the majority of Israel. That was their transgression as Paul describes it in verse 11. That's stage one. And it sounds depressing. It sounds as if God's plan has come off the rails. But amazingly, in God's sovereign mercy, he uses that terrible rejection for good purposes. Stage two, because salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, just think about how wonderful that is. Because suppose all of the Jews 
had accepted the gospel, what would have happened? Well, I'll tell you what would have happened. Christianity would have become an exclusively Jewish sect. But amazingly, God has been able to overrule Israel's disobedience as a way of sending the gospel out to the nations. And we wouldn't be here this morning otherwise. And if you read the book of Acts, you find that pattern happening again and again and again. Paul arrives in a new town he hasn't been at before. The first thing he does is he goes to the synagogue and preaches the gospel. Some of the Jews believe, most of them don't. And eventually Paul gets hoofed out and he takes the gospel to the Gentiles who welcome it and many of them are saved. But uh, that's not the end of the story. You see, some people might read verse 10 and say to themselves, well, that's the end of that. The Jews have rejected the gospel. The gospel's gone to the Gentiles, so the Jews have got no hope. Not at all, says Paul. End of verse 11, look at it carefully. Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. See, what he's saying is that in the sovereign purposes of Almighty God, many Jews are going to look at the blessings that the Gentiles are enjoying in Christ and realise they're missing out. And so they become envious. Now, of course, we all know that envy can be sinful, but it is not necessarily sinful. It might simply be the recognition that I'm missing out on a good thing. And that's what Paul is expecting to happen here. Uh, at home in my study, I have a biography of George Whitfield, uh, who not only gave his name to the college, but uh, who was, of course, the, the greatest preacher in England ever. He was the man that God used to bring a tremendous revival to the United Kingdom and the United States in the 18th century. In the early days of his ministry, uh, on one occasion, a young 17-year-old man went to listen to him, and afterwards he wrote about his experience. This is what he said. I went to the meeting pitying the poor despised Methodists, but I came away envying their happiness. In other words, he went along thinking to himself, well, these people are gullible, they're stupid, and they're naive. But then he looked at them, and he saw that they had something he didn't have, and he wanted it. And uh, he envied their happiness. Now, that is not sinful envy. It's just the recognition they've got something I desperately need in my life. I want it. And this young man uh, pursued Christ. He got converted and he became a marvellous preacher in the revival as well. And Paul says, that's what happens in the Gospel. Can I say that this is a challenge actually for every Christian? Um, this, this should be normal evangelism. You see, evangelism is not just speaking. It is that, of course, as we saw last week in Romans 10, 
And we've got to get the message out to people. Do you remember Paul said, how can they believe unless they hear? How can they hear unless someone preaches? So evangelism involves a spoken message and there's no way around it. But it's got to be backed up by a life that reflects that message and the wonderful things we've received in Christ. And that should be true of the individual life as well as our common life together in all our dealings with one another. Now, I do hope that's our experience. Sometimes it is. So, over the years, I've met a number of people who've become Christians, they've come to faith, and when I've asked them something about their spiritual journey, they've said something like this. Well, I I worked in uh, this office and uh, there was a Christian there and I watched her uh, over a number of years and I couldn't help noticing that there was just something different about her. She had a a sort of an indefinable peace and tranquility. When everybody else in the office was losing their heads, well, she kept hers. And I know she's had some extremely difficult and painful times in her life. And when she had to come to terms with bereavement, she had a hope I knew absolutely nothing about. She knew that death wasn't the end. And uh, when all of the backbiting was going on in the office and people were gossiping about one another behind their backs, she never took part in that. She only ever had good things to say about other people. And I saw that she had something special I didn't have and that's what got me starting to read the Bible, starting to go to church and eventually I got saved. Now I've often heard stories like that. But can we be honest please this morning because there are many times when the opposite is the case. And uh, so often we hear, don't we, we hear people saying, well, you know, um, I'd be quite interested in Christianity if it weren't for the Christians. I mean, Jesus is obviously very special, I can see that, but uh, all the Christians that I've met, well, quite frankly, they put me off. They're either no different from anybody else, or actually, sadly, they're worse. Now, perhaps for that reason, uh, we find it difficult to imagine Jewish people looking at Gentile Christians in chapter 11 and saying to themselves, well, I do wish I had what they've got. And the tragedy is, down the years, that Christians have often treated Jews shamefully and badly, showing, frankly, bigotry and not love, a cold shoulder rather than a warm welcome. And to a greater or lesser extent, I'm sure we've all done it. But in spite of that, Paul says, this is God's sovereign plan. That many Jews, many of his own people, will see the wonders that are being enjoyed by the remnant of the Jews and the Gentiles who believed, and they will become envious, and they will come to faith in Christ.
And even that's not the end of the circle. There's another stage, and it comes in verse 12. Verse 12, But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? Now stay tuned. This is the last difficult thing you've got to get hold of this morning, but it's worth it. So, are you with me? Good. The rejection of the Jews leads to the blessing of the Gentiles, which brings blessing to the Jews. Now, in verse 12, Paul sees even greater blessing for the Gentiles. How much greater riches will their fullness bring? Now, we've got to decode that, haven't we? The word fullness there is talking about the full number of Jews coming to faith in Jesus. And to help us, the same word appears in verse 25, which Bianca didn't have to read for us. You might just like to look at it. Because verse 25 talks about the full number of the Gentiles coming in. So Paul sees a time when all the Gentiles who are going to believe, who've been chosen by God, who've been predestined for salvation, they will have believed. And that is the fullness of them in verse 25. Now applying that same idea to verse 12, there's going to be a time when the fullness of Israel, meaning all those predestined by God to believe in Israel, not all of them, just those chosen by God, they will have done so. Now you may say, well, hang on a minute, Simon, that's blindingly obvious. But Paul's point is this. Just imagine the blessing that's going to bring. I mean, if Israel's rejection of the gospel was the means of bringing blessing to the Gentiles, how much more blessing will there be when the full number of Jewish people have believed and come in? Now in that verse, verse 12, it's not entirely clear what Paul means by the greater riches. Now there are a couple of clues in verses 13 to 15 where Paul uh, talks about his own mission, his own mission to the Gentiles. And we find the same circle of blessing repeated. So verse 13, I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the, the, the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. Now what Paul is saying is, by being focused on preaching to the Gentiles, I have not stopped my concern for the Jews. I have not abandoned my own people. No. My ministry to the Gentiles is for the sake of the Jews. So as more Gentiles come to believe in Jesus, the Jews might be Envious, They might realise they're missing out. And so verse 15. For if their rejection, that is the rejection of the majority of Jews, 
If their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So what's going to happen when the bulk of the people of Israel come to believe? Well, it's going to be even better for the Gentiles. In fact, it's going to be nothing less than life from the dead. Now, there is some debate about what that means. Uh, Some people say that Paul is speaking spiritually. And he's talking about many, many, many conversions happening as the fullness of the Jews come to faith. That there will be, if you like, a worldwide revival. Now, that could be what Paul means. Or it could be that he's talking about a literal resurrection of the dead. In other words, he's saying that when towards the end of human history, the bulk of the people of Israel come to faith in Christ, that's going to bring in the new age uh, and the resurrection of the dead. Now, it's entirely possible that that is what Paul means here. Either way, Paul has a wonderfully positive vision, an exciting circle of blessing. God has not replaced Israel with the church. It's true that if we're Christians, we are part of the Israel of God, and we'll see that in a moment, But God has not given up on the nation of Israel. He's not rejected them. He's still longing to bring many of them, the majority of them, to himself before the end of time. So, the rejection of Israel is not total and it's not final. And as we close, three points of application from the picture of the olive tree, which Paul gives us in verses 17 and 18. Application number one. There is no excuse for anti-Semitism. So Paul takes this illustration, I suppose, from the world of farming, we might say, and he imagines two olive trees. One of them is cultivated, the other one is wild. And the farmer grafts cuttings from the wild tree into the cultivated tree. And Paul says, that's what's happened to you Gentile Christians. Israel is the cultivated tree, planted, nurtured by God for centuries. You, by contrast, well, you're a bit like weeds. You're like wild shoots, and yet God has grafted you in from outside. And yes, God has cut off some of the Jewish branches, meaning the Jews who don't believe. But that is no excuse for you Gentile Christians to be proud, or to imagine that God has finished with Israel, and that he's only interested in you. Remember your roots. Our roots are Jewish roots. And God has not cut down the Jewish tree because of their rejection of Christ 2,000 years ago. Because we Gentiles have been grafted in 
in an unnatural way to an originally Jewish tree. So anti-Semitism ought to be unthinkable for Christian people. We've been grafted in to that Jewish tree by faith. We belong to Israel. Um, Abraham, Moses and David are our spiritual fathers. Jesus the Jew is our Saviour and Lord. And there should be no hint of prejudice towards Jewish people in our attitude, in our thoughts, or in our behaviour. Application number two. There is no room for complacency. End of verse 20. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he won't spare you either. If God could cut off natural Jewish branches because of unbelief, then if we who've been grafted in don't persevere in faith, we could find we're cut off as well. And that's a reminder, dear friends, that we need to keep on believing. Now, I very firmly believe that the New Testament does teach once saved always saved. But how do you know that you're saved? Well, the way that you know that you're a true believer is that you keep on believing. So the key question we need to be asking ourselves day by day is, am I believing in Jesus? Am I fighting against sin? Because, of course, the fight against sin is the proof that I do believe in Jesus. Or are we actually allowing unbelief to take root in our lives? Perhaps we're not quite as disciplined about reading our Bibles and praying as we were three months ago or six months ago. We've slipped into a rut. Paul says, if you go too far down that road, you may find there's no way back. There is no room, no room, for complacency. Application number three there are strong grounds for hope. Verses 23 and 24. Verse 23. And if the Jews do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. In other words, if God is able to bring in unnatural shoots like us and graft them into the original tree, how much easier will it be for God to graft back the natural branches? And he's committed to doing it. So, dear friends, please don't be gloomy about the progress of the gospel in the world. Yes, there are things to be sad about. There is much to mourn. And there is a terrible judgment coming at the end of human history for many, many people. But the Bible gives us a wonderfully positive vision because the gospel is going to go out and out and out. And Paul's message is that at the end of time, multitudes of people uh, are going to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus, both Jew and Gentile. 
So God does have a wonderful plan for the Jewish nation. They are very much a part of his plans for the human race. And I've given you at the bottom of the outline there a quotation from C.S. Lewis that I think puts it brilliantly. He says this, In a sense, the converted Jew is the only normal human being in the world. Everyone else is, from one point of view, a special case dealt with under emergency conditions. Isn't that marvellous? And our response, you see, ought to be to bow in awe and wonder before our amazing God and the wisdom and goodness that he has deployed in making it possible for you and I to be here this morning and to have a place in his eternal kingdom. Will you bow with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we want to thank you this morning and praise you for your amazing, astonishing plan of salvation. No human being could ever have imagined these things as the way to bring the good news of Jesus to the hearts and minds of millions from every tribe and tongue and people and language. Help us, Father, to remember that you can save literally anybody, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done. Give give us, I pray, your heart for the lost and make us instruments in your hands to share the good news of Jesus with everybody as you give us opportunity. And we ask it in his precious name. Amen. Well, obviously grace was a major theme uh, in that passage this morning, and if you want to spend a a moment this afternoon thinking more deeply about what does the Bible mean by grace, what do Christians believe about grace, why is grace important? I have a number of these booklets called Just Grace. Uh, It's one of the finest little Christian tracts I've come across, and uh, you can have one for free. All you've got to do is come and ask me. So uh, I hope you'll do that.